Well, I hope everybody had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Did you? Yeah. Good. All right. That's the reason. That's the best service we've had so far. You know, uh, that, that sound. I asked the other service, how was your Thanksgiving? And I kind of like, eh. Anyway, so good. I'm glad. No, it wasn't quite bad. You know, now that Thanksgiving is over and that Christmas season has officially begun, do you know what you can do now? You can now officially listen to Christmas music, all right? How many of you are with me that it's just wrong to listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving? All right, how many, so okay. How many of you can listen to it, all the weirdos, raise your hand. Who can listen to it before, no, I'm, I really don't care when you listen to Christmas music, but for me personally, I just can't, it doesn't quite feel right if you're playing that music before. I have to hold my wife off on the, the Christmas decorations until after Thanksgiving because it doesn't feel right to decorate your house before Thanksgiving, that, that's me. But you know what feels absolutely correct? And that is to leave your Christmas lights up all year round because that is just a pain in the rear to take down every year. I hope you had a great, great, great Thanksgiving. We sure did. And uh, now that we are into Christmas, I'm really happy to be starting a series uh, today called The Cast of Christmas. Been working on it for a while. And if you're here thinking, wait, where's the Rescued series? Rest assured, we're going to come back to Rescued in January. We're doing that just like we did with our Origin series. We took a little bit of break during the holidays to focus in on the birth narrative of Christ. And that's what we're doing today uh, and starting today with this series, The Cast of Christmas. And just so you know, there's no surprises here with this series. We are going to be talking about some very familiar names and places. And we're gonna be using, you know, even if you've never been in church before, if this is your very first time to ever come to church or you're a brand new Christian, some of this is gonna sound very familiar to you. Because when you talk about prophets and the magi and the shepherds and the angels, that these are names that have worked its way into our society. Whether you, you read a Christmas card or, or you hear a Christmas song, this is not unfamiliar territory. In fact, I would imagine the number of the details about the cast of Christmas, most of you are very familiar with. I would say if you are, have been a Christian for any length of time, then Luke chapter two and the early parts of the gospel talking about the details around the birth of Christ, I would hope and pray that these are some of the most, most familiar parts of the Bible. But here's what I find absolutely fascinating about those parts of the Bible that we come to and we're like, oh, I'm very familiar with this. And we all, I think, have this experience. What I find fascinating is just how often God uses these very familiar parts of the Bible, these very familiar names, to open our eyes to what he wants us to see right now in the present. Have you had that experience? I've certainly had that experience many times. Why is that? Why is something that you've read it many times, but then now it, it hits you different? Is that because the scriptures have changed? No, absolutely not. Although there are plenty of people that try to change the scriptures and try to reimagine, reinterpret them, but that's just wrong. The scriptures have not changed. Have the details of the cast of Christmas changed at all? No, 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 they, they haven't changed at all. So, so what's changed? Why does it impact you differently later? It's because you have changed, that's why. What you're going through right now is probably a lot different than where you were at last Christmas when you thought about these things. And I would ask you this question, what is different today, what's going on in your life today that is completely different than what you're going through a year ago? Now, the scriptures haven't changed, but perhaps some of your relationships have. Now, the cast of Christmas hasn't changed, but where you live and what you do for a living could have changed. 
The cast of Christmas hasn't changed, but what you're into today, whether it be big or small, that's probably changed since last Christmas. The cast of Christmas does not change. The Bible does not change. But I think you'd agree with me that our society changes often, very rapid pace. So what I'm trying to communicate to you is this, is that I believe God can take this, what for many of us is a very familiar story about the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ, and he's gonna use it to speak some real truth into whatever it is you're going through. And he can do that because God's word is timeless. And you can trust God's words. Because he speaks truth in our lives just like it has for every generation who has ever read and believed God's words, going all the way back to those who God inspired to write it. And that's why you can read Luke chapter two, the birth narrative of Jesus, you can read it a hundred times. But on the hundred and first time, God opens your eyes to something brand new. And I believe he's gonna do it. You know, back in 1914, Ernest Shackleton and a team of explorers left out of England to do something that has not been done before. And what that is, they were gonna go to Antarctica, they were going to cross from one side to the other, across the South Pole. Well, if you know your history, then you know that disaster struck on that expedition, didn't it? Um, The ship, which was called the Endurance, got trapped in the ice, and over the next few months, the ice crushed in around the ship, and it damaged its hull, and it sank right to the bottom. Consequently, did you know that just a few months ago, after it sat on the bottom for 107 years, they found it? Did you know that? And what's amazing is that the pictures that have been published, because the water where it sank is so cold um, that it's almost perfectly, perfectly preserved. So when you look at these pictures, it looks like the day it went down. They consider it one of the best preserved shipwrecks anywhere in the world. You should really take some time to Google that sometime. Not right now, of course, but later. (laughs) When you get home, it's fascinating. But if you know your history, then you know the the crew of the Endurance, they all survived, but they were marooned on a place called Elephant Island, and there seemed little hope of survival. And just think about where the world was and where technology was in 1914 and where they were. Uh, Let's just say the Coast Guard's not sending in the choppers, okay? So, in a desperate effort for help, Shackleton and five other of his crew, they get into a 20-foot lifeboat, and they set sail on what is considered to this day one of the most dangerous, um, dangerous trips ever known to man. And they, they sailed through storm-filled waters, through an 800-mile journey. They battled these treacherous seas and massive waves, and all they had to use to navigate them was a compass and a sectant. That's it. And they were able to navigate and reach safety. And once they got to where civilization was, 800 miles away, they were able to secure a a ship, and they went back, and they rescued the rest of the crew, and every one of them walked out of there alive. It's 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 an amazing thing. And and, uh, Shackleton went home to England, uh, a national hero, obviously. And when I heard that they found the ship, my, I went back and, and, and read up on my history about this whole thing. And this thought came to me. You know, just like Shackleton and his crew, all of us are making our way through a very stormy world that we're living in. And ever since the very first sin that ever happened in the Garden of Eden, mankind has struggled with sin. We've struggled to make wise decisions. We've struggled to do what God wanted us to do in the face of a very uncertain future. 
And the only way that any of us can ensure that we're gonna walk through this life and not go astray is to have some kind of objective truth right in front of us to guide us. Just like that compass did for Shackleton and his crew, our holy word of God is that, that uh, objective truth, that unchanging truth that will guide us through this world that we live in. Let me tell you something, friends. You can trust God's word, you can trust it more than your own personal feelings. You can trust God's word more um, than the opinions of your friends. You can trust God's word more than your own convictional wisdom of the day. We can always trust it. Why can we always trust it? Because it is the inspired word of God. It is without error, and you can trust it. And that, my friends, is my conviction that God's word is true. In fact, it's that same conviction that the words of God are true that caused people some 2,000 years ago to be looking for a savior to come into the world. They were expecting God to send somebody. Prophets like, like in the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Hosea and Micah and even David, they prophesied throughout the Old Testament that God is going to send someone to rescue them, to lead them, and the people believed their words. They didn't know when the Messiah was gonna come. They, they didn't have any knowledge about the exact date, but they were waiting for this one to arrive, and they'd been waiting for a long time. And why were they expecting this one to come? It's because they believed that God's words were true. Now, how do we know that people were expecting God to send a Savior? Well, it's because the Bible tells us that they were. Like, like in John chapter 7, this is after Jesus was born, and uh, people were trying to figure out, could Jesus be the one that the prophets wrote about? Could he be the Messiah? He would say things and do things that baffled people, and they would often wonder, who is he? One of those places is in John chapter 7. He had been teaching, and people were wondering, who is he? And if you look at John chapter 7, verse 40, if you don't have time to turn there, that's fine. It's going to be on the screen behind me. But on hearing his words, hearing Jesus' words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others ask, how can he be the Messiah? How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Now let me tell you something. These few verses speak a whole lot to me. It's easy to read through them and just be part of the narrative that is Jesus' life. But if you stop and analyze it, there are some really key things that come out of this back and forth that people are having with one another. For starters, it shows us what? That they had been expecting and longing and waiting for a Messiah for a long time. They're having this conversation, could he be? But you know what else it shows us? It shows us that they knew what the scriptures taught about the Messiah. It wasn't wishful thinking. No, they believed the scriptures, that, that they knew that the Messiah would be a descendant of somebody, and they actually knew where the Messiah was gonna come from. They even name the town. Did you see it? Isn't he gonna come from Bethlehem? How did they know this? How was this part of the national conversation of people, of the Jews in that day? How did they know it? They knew it because they believed God's prophets. They believed God's word, and they've been waiting for a long time for him. Now, even though it's very obvious from Scripture that, that they all had different ideas and expectations for when the Messiah was going to come, but they knew that he would come 
from Bethlehem. You know, there's something that we know about this time of year, Christmas, and it's something that they knew. They knew what it meant to wait, and they knew what it meant to have some expectations. And let me tell you, Christmas is full of waiting and expectations. If you don't believe me, just ask some kid that uh, you see today, and you ask him, what are you most excited for about Christmas? And you know what they're gonna say? 99% of the time, I can't wait for Christmas because we get to open presents. Every kid, every kid, they're all the same. Um, I had my family over on Thursday, and when I say my family, I had my brother and his family, uh, and my sister and her family, they all came to Bella Vista, and we had Thanksgiving together. And since our family, since, you know, we, we all, you know, have spouses, other families, we don't spend every holiday together. I'm sure your family's the same way. So we don't spend every Christmas together, so on the years that we're not together on Christmas, we're together on Thanksgiving. So what we do when we're together on Thanksgiving is we merge Christmas and Thanksgiving together. Do you guys do this? We call it Thankmas, all right, that's what we do. So my brother Tim, he has a young boy, um, his youngest, he's the youngest of our whole family, and he's still got that childlike excitement, you know? So all during Thanksgiving day, is it time yet? <laughs> is it time to open presents? One by one, he went to all the adults, what time are we open presents today? Is it what time are we doing that? Can we open presents? Why? Because he's just like every other kid. There's this excitement and anticipation and expectation that yet comes with this Christmas season. And this whole idea of waiting and preparation for this Christmas season that we're in, it, it makes me think of the waiting and the preparation that people were doing for years as they waited for the arrival of the Messiah. They clearly were expecting God to do something there. And if you read the Bible, and I hope all of you do, I hope it's part of your regular daily routine, but you go back to the beginning, it becomes pretty obvious that from the opening pages of the Bible, there has been this expectation that God would send somebody. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve sinned after they were tempted by Satan and they got punished for that, and, and God says these words to Satan in Genesis 3.15. He says to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the very first reference in the entire Bible about somebody, someone, someone who's gonna come from God and he's gonna make things right. And from that moment onward, the entire Old Testament, it points us to this great moment of the Savior's arrival. When the Messiah would show up and make things right, ultimately, and we learn later, would destroy the curse of sin, free us from it. We're not there yet in our study through Exodus, but we are seeing the, some of the foundational pieces being laid. But later on, with the whole sacrificial system that God had the Israelites do, and the temple, and all, all of that leads us towards and points us to a Messiah. Even when you think about the Israelites who were in bondage in Egypt, there is a parallel story that is happening with us spiritually. As they were in bondage of Egypt, we today are in bondage to sin, and they needed a rescuer, just like we need a rescuer to free us from sin. 
Everything in the Old Testament points forward to the coming of the Messiah. And you read about all the prophets and you see what they wrote and how they all longed for this one to come. So you know this Christmas as we are waiting a lot and making preparations for the big day, I believe it's a good reminder, a very good reminder, that there have been many that we read all throughout the Old, the Old Testament, New Testament, who were waiting equally, uh, eagerly and making preparations for Jesus' ultimate arrival. You know, in, in Matthew chapter two, we learn about these men from the east. That's what the Bible says. They came because they saw something in the sky. Some kind of astronomical phenomenon is what they saw. Some kind of star that they'd never seen before. The Bible refers to them as the Magi, also called the, the wise men. I hate to break the news to you, but the song is wrong. They're not kings, all right? They're, we three kings, we don't know there was, if there was three, but just so you know, I hope I didn't ruin that song forever. For every. But they interpreted this signal in the sky to mean that the next king of the Jews, the Messiah, had been born. And they go to see it. They, they want to see this one. They want to go pay homage to the new king. And so off they go. And it's no surprise that they wind up in Jerusalem. If, if the new king of the Jews had been born, Jerusalem is the most likely place that he is going to be. And so when the wise men get there, they're given access to the court of King Herod. And they ask him, where is the next king of the Jews? He's been born. Where is he? Now, of course, if you happen to be the current king and you have no knowledge of the next king being born, then this isn't exactly the kind of news you were expecting to get that day. And you take Herod, who is a very evil guy, who could care nothing about the Lord or anything the Lord is doing. Not only is this not the news you want to hear, this is actually shocking news. You know what I also find interesting? Herod didn't know anything about it, but he had people all around him who did know. They knew what the prophets had foretold, and when the Magi from the east brought it up, these people around Herod, they sure didn't think long or hard to figure out what they were talking about. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter two, verse four, it says this. When he, that's Herod, when Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophets had written. The prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. They sure seemed to know the answer pretty quick, didn't they? Where did they, where did they learn this from? Well, they learned it from the prophecies about the Messiah. Herod may have been the very last person to know, but I'm telling you, there were people near him who had spent a lifetime learning God's word and learning everything they could know about it, and they certainly knew that the Messiah was going to come. The common Jewish citizen knew something that, about a Messiah that is to come. That's what we read about in John 7 when they were debating it. There was this general knowledge. Where do they get this knowledge? Well, I'll tell you. The, the leaders of that day that were talking to Herod, they went specifically to some scripture that had been written about 700 years before Jesus' birth. That's right. 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Micah was inspired by God to look forward 
to the birth of the Savior. And, and as the Lord inspired him through the Spirit to know this and look forward, these are the words that he wrote 700 years before Jesus. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, friends, there's a lot of prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. But this is the one right here from, from Micah 5.2, 700 years before Jesus was born. This is the prophecy that they were referring to when the Magi showed up and said, where's the king of the Jews? Where is he? Where's the Messiah? And they looked at the words of, 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 of Micah and they said, he's going to be from Bethlehem. That's how they knew. It was this prophecy that the crowd in John 7 was referring to when they were trying to figure out what Jesus was and who he was. And they said, isn't he supposed to come from Bethlehem? This is how they knew. And what I find really incredible, I find it awesome about Micah's prophecy is that he says the one that's gonna come, the one that's gonna rule over Israel, did you catch these words? Has origins that are from old, from ancient times. Micah is acknowledging that this one that's gonna come has a prior existence. That's a powerful thing. Why is this detail important? What truth does, does Micah affirm about this one to come? It affirms that the Messiah is gonna be somebody who transcends time. You know, they would have known this back in, in Jesus' day. They would have known and expected the Messiah to be powerful. They would have expected the Messiah to do something that no one else could do. But they all had different ideas about what the Messiah was actually going to do. And we understand this as we read their conversations in the New Testament. They knew it'd be powerful, but exactly what he was gonna do, they just knew it was gonna be good. Now for us today, as Christians today, we have the completed revelation from God. And what I mean by that is simply this. We have the complete Bible. We have the Old Testament, and we also have the New Testament. They did not have the New Testament back then. They had the prophecies. What we have the benefit of is we have the New Testament. So doctrinally speaking, the New Testament completes this understanding for us of the Messiah. Of not just who he, you know, what he was to do, but who he was. And, and you don't have to look any farther than the fourth gospel, John. And he tells us very clearly all about the Messiah. He says that the, he affirms for us that not only does this one that's to come uh, transcend time, but this one that is to come is going to be divine. He's gonna be divine. And, and so you just look at John and he affirms this for us. He said this, remember John 1.1? 1, 1? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life 
And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So when John says the word, he is specifically referring to Jesus. Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, and he's been around since the beginning. He was present at creation. Nothing's been made without him. He's talking about Jesus. Now, how do we know that he is talking about Jesus when he says the word? Well, this is the nice thing about what John wrote about. He tells us what he means. Jump down to verse 14. He says this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Mike is acknowledging way back in the day, 700 years before Jesus, that the one that's gonna come is gonna transcend time. His origins are from old, from ancient times. And the New Testament completes it for us and lets us know that he is divine. Actually, this one to come is actually God himself. So they were trying to figure it out. And that's very obvious in the New Testament. But thank the good Lord that he's completed it for us and we know exactly who he was. There's this one time in John chapter eight where um, unlike before in John chapter seven where people were having this conversation who he is, in John chapter eight it was an angry crowd. They're, they're listening to Jesus speak, they're, they're seeing the things that he does and you know what they accuse him of in John chapter eight? They accuse him of being possessed by a demon. Can you imagine? That's their only conclusion. You gotta be possessed by, by a demon. And it says in John chapter eight, verse 49, this is Jesus' response. He says, I am not possessed by a demon. And even though this little Greek word's not in there, I do believe it should be. I think Jesus should have said, I am not possessed by a demon. Duh. Now, I, don't, I don't know what that, it's not in there, but I'm adding it. I'm not possessed by a demon. Are you kidding me? And then Jesus said, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Whew. I am not seeking glory for myself. That's what he says to this crowd. But there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And it's this kind of language that absolutely drove them nuts back in that day. Because who has the right to talk about this? Who has the authority outside of God to ever say things like this? If you believe my word, you're never going to see death. This is for Abraham to say. This is something that the prophet, speaking for God to say. Not some guy named Jesus who says he's here to glorify his father. No, 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 that's not for you to say. That's their, their mindset. Look at verse 52. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? I mean, now this is a loaded statement because the Jewish people back in this day and age, they regarded Abraham as the patriarch, the greatest. The words of Abraham mean everything. And they're asking Jesus, it sure sounds like Jesus, that you think you're greater than Abraham, are you? And he goes, Abraham died and so did the prophets, the ones who spoke for God. Who do you think you are? This isn't the first time, it's not the last time that people are gonna refuse to see Jesus for who he really is and falsely accuse him um, of things. 
Friends, this is still going on today. People today, all around the world, refuse to see Jesus for who he is, and they falsely accuse him of all kinds of things. Look in verse 54. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. It's getting very personal, friends. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Now let me, let me tell you what we're reading here. Jesus is speaking very personally as if he actually knew Abraham. And I'm here to tell you, he did. Jesus knew Abraham personally. Now Jesus is God, this is affirmed all over the Bible. Jesus and God are one. You might recall from our Genesis series last year that, that God had a very unique relationship with Abraham. God spoke with Abraham like you and me speaking today. In fact, Abraham is the only person in the entire Bible who is referred to as God's friend. Oh yeah, they knew each other. And, and this crowd, this crowd of people attacking Jesus in John chapter eight, like, what do you mean you knew Abraham? What do you mean when you say that Abraham would rejoice at the thought of my coming? And he saw it, and he's happy about it. And then they said this in verse 57, you're not yet even 50 years old. That's what they said of Jesus. And you say that you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now that's a big time claim. Especially in the culture and society that Jesus said it in. Now I could spend a long time on exactly what he said right here. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. But what I want to point out to you is... Jesus saying, I am God. And like Micah said 700 years ago, his origins would be of old, from ancient times. This is something that Jesus is filling in the rest of the story for them. I'm that guy. And yeah, I know Abraham. And he'd have been thrilled about this moment. Of course, they didn't like that. So in verse 59, it says that they picked up stones to stone him because that's the natural response when somebody says something you don't like. <laughs> Times haven't changed, have they? <laughs> you hurt my feelings, now I'm gonna stone you. We just stone people through social media, that's all. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So this one that Micah was talking about who was from origins of old, from ancient times. We know through the Bible that, that he has over 100 different names. He's called the Alpha and the Omega, the Word of Life, the Bright and Morning Star, the Light of the World. He's called the I Am, the Ancient of Days, Jesus. His name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this one came very humbly. 
If people really knew who he was when he came, they would have had parades. The whole world would have come to a stop and they would have brought out all the pomp and circumstances. But Jesus chose to come in a very humble situation. There was no proper room for him when he was born. Now you think about the one from ancient time whose origins are of old. There wasn't even a proper room for him to come into this world. But don't allow the humble circumstances that Jesus chose to fulfill these prophecies confuse you as to who this child is. He's the ancient one, the creator, the author and giver of life, the word of God. And for hundreds of years, the Israelites looked to this one, this very specific one, for their rescue. And I think about their waiting and their expectation and their preparation and you know, I, it reminds me of just something about this season that we are in. They waited a long time for the arrival of the Messiah. And friends, I'm gonna tell you right now, as they waited for the first coming of Jesus, we are the same in that we as the church today, we are not waiting for his first arrival, but we are very much just the same waiting for his second arrival. We're waiting for him to come again. And I wonder, as they prepare themselves for his coming, what does it look like for us today to prepare ourselves for his second coming? What does that preparation look like? Well, you know, I'll tell you, that's probably a sermon series all by itself. How do you prepare yourself for the second coming of Jesus? But in general, I would like to say a few things about preparing ourselves for the second coming. As I study the scriptures and I look at what did people do to get ready for the Messiah? Well, I'll tell you this, preparation begins with repentance. Preparation begins with repentance. And I, and I pull that from probably the very last greatest prophet there ever was, and that would be John the Baptist. He was the last prophet who was waiting to see and preaching about the coming of our Savior. He was ready for the Lamb of God to come and that was his role, to get people ready for him. And he says this in Matthew chapter three, verse two. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Quite literally, he's saying, Jesus is near. I'm not even sure John realized just how near Jesus was because soon after he said these words, he will be looking at the Lamb of God eye to eye when Jesus comes to him and says, it's time for you to baptize me. And John says, no, 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 you should baptize me. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. So the last great prophet preparing people for the arrival of the Messiah, what was his message to the people to be ready for it? He says, repent. Jesus is near, repent. The arrival, the kingdom of heaven is coming near. Your one response is to repent. Now, repentance, the, 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 the most simplest definition of repentance is just this. It means to change your mind. John isn't calling people out to say, you need to feel bad and you need to live miserable lives in guilt and shame. That's, that's not his message. Now I think we all know that true repentance often does begin with some guilt and shame and agony over our sins. But that's not what John is saying to them. John is calling these people to change their mind about the way they've been living. 
The one that has been predicted to come, he is coming. And your heart needs to be in a certain way to receive him. So he calls them to repentance. Change your mind, change your course. Christmas is a very appropriate time to me to have a change of mind about some things. To read the Christmas narrative from Luke 2 and read it with a very soft heart and open eyes and open ears and allow it to impact you differently. You know, this Christmas does not have to be like every other Christmas. Stressed, rushed, overwhelming, or am I just talking about a number of my past Christmases? <laughs> we can take our cue from the prophets of old as we wait and prepare for the second arrival of Jesus. Psalm 51 verse 17 is still very true, my friends. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Preparation for the second coming of Jesus is really not that different than preparation for the first coming of Jesus. And it begins with repentance. And I pray for our nation, I hope you pray for our nation too, that we might have a massive moment of repentance in our land. And that revival can come to our land. Wouldn't that be an incredible thing? You know, or Jesus could just come back and that would be good too. But we should do everything we can to bring as many people with us Preparation begins with repentance. What else? As I think about what else John told the people, preparation produces fruit in your life. In other words, if you're living your life in a way that I, I'm ready for Jesus to come, there's gonna be some fruit. Now I'm gonna go back to what John said. What was his message? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. And so John, in their moment of repentance, there was some action that followed that call to repent. You change your mind. What did change in their mind look like? They went right into the water and they got baptized. So their repentance was followed by action. So John's baptism was for repentance. Change your course, change your mind, come be baptized, get ready for Jesus' arrival. But then it says in verse seven, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers. That's pretty strong language, by the way. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And then he says this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do you, do you wanna know if you're prepare, preparing yourself for the second coming of Jesus? Then just answer this question. Is my life producing this kind of spiritual fruit talked about in the Bible? So I've changed my mind about sin and I choose Jesus as my savior. You are saved at that moment. But then that that action, that belief right there, that, that, that I want Jesus, I'm sorry, I changed my ways, I want you, Lord, I'm gonna follow you and confess you as my leader. That, friends, produces some kind of action in your life. And this is where your life begins to produce spiritual fruit. And this fruit will increase as we anticipate the coming of Jesus. You know, there's all kinds of a spiritual fruit that, that we could point to. It could be increased desire to serve the Lord, a closer relationship with God, um, a greater ability than you've ever had to, to, to serve others and to care for others and to have compassion. You can have a stronger family life, victory over sin, a greater peace in your heart, a deeper love that you've ever known. I would think about it maybe this way. 
is where I'm at with my walk with Jesus. Is it stronger, more alive, and more active today than it was three Christmases ago? Do I have more fruit in my life today than I did a couple of Christmases ago? And if so, praise God, you are preparing effectively for the second coming of Jesus. But if not, if you're like, no, I don't think there is, I don't think my life is, is any different, then you know what? It's never too late to start bearing fruit. You may have repented of your sins and chosen to follow Christ, but you know what? You may need to repent of some complacency in your heart. I've just been going through the motions. I haven't been living my life with any kind of eager anticipation of anything. Maybe you need to repent of just becoming a religious person. If you don't stay active and alive in your walk with Jesus, you just become religious, and religion won't serve anybody. So you have just this mentality, I'm no longer waiting, I'm just going to church, and I'm just going through emotion. Friends, I'm telling you, if that's you today, you have time to change course, to repent, change my mind about the course that my life is on, and reaffirm my commitment to Christ, and start producing this kind of spiritual fruit in your life. So, I could say a lot more, but preparation begins with repentance. It was the same then as it is today. Preparation produces fruit in your life. Jesus said, you'll know you're my disciples by the fruit that you bear. It'll become obvious. But then there's this one thing. It's one more thing that when I think about preparation, when you are, are, are preparing for it, it leads to uh, an expected rescue. You start to think about the second coming more. You start to think about that day when the Lord will come to rescue us. And what all of this means today leads up to this one moment into the future. 2013, there was a, a movie that was released uh, called Captain Phillips, starring Tom Hanks. Have you guys seen that movie? Are you familiar with that movie? Um, you likely remember that movie because it was based off of a true story of how some Somali pirates had commandeered a, a cargo ship that was piloted by, by Captain Phillips. And um, if you've never seen the movie, I'm about to ruin it for you. <laughs> but it's been long enough. That's on you, I guess. It's almost 10 years ago. But through a series of events, uh, Captain Phillips, he convinces his captors to let the crew go so they can take a lifeboat and they can head home. And that's what they do. And they end up taking Captain Phillips with them. So they're in the water in this lifeboat and they're powering towards the Somalian coast and they've got their prized possession, Captain Phillips, because they're gonna probably try to hold him as a, for ransom and, and get some money for him. And then one of the best, I believe, one of the best moments in the film, and I wonder if it wasn't one of the best true life moments for Captain Phillips, the real Captain Phillips as well. And that's when, in the middle of the night, out of the darkness, the, the silence of the, of, the, of the darkness of the night was broken by this loud horn, this, this overpowering horn from the USS Bainbridge that thundered through the night sky and they turned on all the floodlights and illuminated the entire ocean including, including the, 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 rescue, the, the lifeboat. This right here is I think the most powerful moment in the whole movie and if you catch it, it's a really quick moment but as the floodlight comes across the lifeboat and shines inside, it hits 
Tom Hanks' face, the, the actor who played Captain Phillips, and he has this big smile on his face, and you can almost read, read his mind. He's like, you're gonna get it now. You're in trouble now. Look who's out there. You're toast. There's this incredible moment. And I watched that movie, and I was reminded that one day, the trumpet blast from heaven will let out. And you're in trouble now. <laughs> There's gonna be this great trumpet call of God. And everything's gonna change. You know, I, I read up a little bit on the USS Bainbridge, and it's one of a number of, of guided missile destroyers in the US Navy. And you know this thing can destroy up to 100 targets all at the same time. So when the USS Bainbridge comes to your rescue, you know that the pirates are in trouble and that real hope has finally arrived. One thing I hope that we understand about Christmas is that in the midst, midst of all the sentimentality of like the beautiful nativity and the wonderful soft Christmas songs like Silent Night and Away in the Manger, in the midst of all of that, you gotta remember, Christmas at its very core was a rescue mission. And the one who came to our rescue wasn't some outgunned, outclassed, hopeless underdog. The one who came to our rescue was Emmanuel, God with us, who at that moment had all the authority in the world to call down any number of angels he wanted for his purposes and his desires. And you saw what one angel did on the night of the Passover. What do you think 10,000 could do? The ancient one that Micah talked about humbled himself and he became fully man because you and I were the hostages being held captive by sin. Christmas was the beginning of the rescue mission that was conceived and carried out on our behalf by none other than God himself. So friends, Jesus came once and he's coming again. And you know, as we embark on this new Christmas series, I leave you with this question. And the question is this, this Christmas, are you ready for the second coming of Jesus? If not, then it's time to prepare. And how do you repair? Prepare. You repent, you produce spiritual fruit in your life in keeping with that repentance, and you wait for the biggest rescue that there has ever been when the trumpet call of God will blast and the skies will open and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will rescue us. It's an amazing thing when you really think about it. Let me pray for you. Dear Lord, I just thank you for your holy word as always. I thank you, Lord, as always, for how it guides and teaches us. Lord, I thank you that we, can, that we know it's true, that we can believe it, and that it is our guide through life and we can trust it. And so, Lord, we believe the words of the Bible that talk about your second coming and, and what it is that we need to do to be ready for it. So Lord, we lift you up today and we thank you for your saving work that you did for us on the cross. How you came, the kingdom of God drew near 
and you taught everybody what it means to be in your family. And then you died on that cross. Once and for all sacrifice, shed your blood to redeem mankind. And then, Lord, three days later, you rose out of that tomb alive, conquering sin and death forever. And Lord, like you told your disciples, you've gone somewhere to prepare a place for us. And if you go away to prepare a place, you will indeed come back to take us where you are. Oh Lord, we look forward to it. And in the meantime, we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit to dwell in us and we can become the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are with us every step of the way. And so Lord, we give you great honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.